Let's open up in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. The title of this message is actually a question, which is, what is it to be salt and light? We're obviously going to look at that famous passage where Jesus says to his followers, to us, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So we're going to explore the question, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? What does it mean to be the light of the world? As Jesus said to us. So we'll look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus speaking in Matthew 5, 13 says to us, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us that is before us this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for your call, for your followers to be salt and light. We ask that this morning you'd give us understanding as to what that means and that this, this invitation, this call, this statement by you about who we are would thrill us, that we've been brought into your story and your work. It would thrill us and inspire us and we'd be compelled by your truth and by your spirit to live lives for your glory. Help us to do that, Lord. Thank you, God, for what you're doing in our little church, in spite of us and by grace. Thank you. You've been so kind to us, Lord. May we continue to follow and obey you. We all pray together now that you would help me to teach and preach in a way that is absolutely faithful and truly helpful. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So how are we to think about what Jesus said here? You are the salt of the earth. You, you are the light of the world. Most of us hear that, and we kind of assume we, we get it. We at least assume, well, I get the general metaphor, and we start assigning all these things. Ooh, here's what salt does. It flavors, and it does this, and light does this. And it seems like a pretty easy metaphor to get, and we assume that we get it and try to kind of lean into some of those things. But here's how we're supposed to think about it. Okay, what I want to get to is the theological underpinnings behind what Jesus is saying. The biblical story that causes Jesus to say this. We'll spend a couple weeks in this text, so we'll get to some of the nitty-gritty details of what it might look like to be salt and light in our culture and our world. But I want to get to the theological underpinnings. Why did Jesus use this sort of phraseology, and what did he have in mind, and why did he say it at this time? So here's how we're to think about it. Matthew has been presenting to us the story of Jesus, as we've seen it thus far, as the continuation or the completion of the story of God's work with Israel, God's redemptive work with Israel, which is a a snapshot or a picture or even a living parable of God's work amongst humanity. So Matthew's been presenting to us Jesus as the continuation, even the completion of God's story of how he's working in the world. 
That's how Matthew is rightly presenting Jesus to us. And that, that story, that story of redemption goes basically like this. We mentioned it last week. We have God acting in loving creation, loving creation. And then we have humanity acting out in sinful rebellion, sinful rebellion. And then we have God acting again through gracious redemption. And that's the beginning of the story. Loving creation, God acting, sinful rebellion, us acting, gracious redemption, God at work to redeem us. Remember that the Beatitudes that we looked at last week were, in essence, God communicating to us once again what we've always been told through the biblical story and narrative is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Remember that from last week? I called your grandmother a heretic because she used to say God helps those who help themselves and nothing could be less biblical and more wrong. Heretic grandmas. What the Beatitudes were telling us last week, what the biblical story tells us is that God actually helps those who cannot help themselves. That is gracious redemption. That is what God is doing in light of sinful rebellion. We learned in the Beatitudes that God brings a blessing to those who are unexpected and undeserving. We talked about Israel's choosing as God's vehicle and example of redemption. And that God didn't choose them because they were big and powerful. They weren't. They were the opposite. God didn't choose them because they were rich and influential. They didn't have anything that was theirs that hadn't come from God. And God didn't choose them because they were right and righteous or good and obedient. They weren't. They were disobedient, stiff-necked, obstinate, and rebellious. God chose them according to grace, unexpected, undeserved, in accordance with God's love and God's purposes. God's grace and God's blessing, we learn in the Bible, comes to the unexpected and the undeserving. But there's more that then follows in the biblical storyline. After redemption, what follows in the story, the completion of it is restoration. So we have creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God acts in loving creation. Humanity falls in sinful rebellion. God works in gracious redemption. And then God and humanity are brought together again in the work of restoration. There is a co-work now in restoration. God, through Christ and his work on the cross, redeems us from the penalty and the power of sin That's redemption. And then he begins in us a process of restoration, bringing us back to original intent and simultaneously begins in us a work of restoration, returning creation or the world back toward original intent. It is ultimately eschatological. That means it comes at the end when Christ returns and renews all things. That's a full expression of it. But there is a current process now where after saving us, redeeming us, God is working in us a restoring thing to bring us back to his original intent, which we'll explain in a moment, and through us to head creation, the world toward original intent. 
And that intended state is close relationship with God and co-work with God, working together with God. So let's see this explained in the first couple books of Scripture. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Turn there in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as we look at a little bit of the creation account, the first part of the story. If you're having trouble finding Genesis, it's toward the beginning, pretty, pretty much in the front there. Genesis chapter 1, we'll look at verses 26 through 28, just a little snapshot. It says in Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, some Trinitarian language there. According to our likeness, here comes a key key phrase, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's another key phrase. It's synonymous with the other one. And subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we have in God's creation of humanity, original intent. And original intent involved nearness. Nearness in proximity. God is pictured there with us, nearness and proximity and nearness in essence. We were made in the image of God. There's some real connectivity here. Original intent involves nearness and proximity and in essence. It also involves, we saw there, blessing. It says, and God blessed them. There's the genesis or the beginning of what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are. God's intent was always to bless humanity. So it involves nearness, proximity, and essence. It involves blessing, God blessing us, undeserved, unexpected. We, we were brand new out of dust, didn't expect anything. And it involves co-ruling. Let us make man in our image and let them rule, and we are called to subdue it. God would still be the big king, the king of the universe. He's actually ruling and in charge. But do you see the original intent that we would work with God in God's work, doing God's thing in the world that God created? That's original intent. That's loving creation. After that comes sinful rebellion, the bad part of the story. Turn to chapter 3. And we'll look at the fall. In fact, we'll just look at some of the pronounced consequences of it. We won't look at the event itself. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Then to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, which, pause right there, normally we would recommend you do so. (laughs) Normally you should always listen to the voice of your wife. This was the one time where it went bad. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, pause. Now there's a curse in the world. God had pronounced blessing. There was a blessing in creation. 
Now, because of sinful rebellion, because of human sin, now there is a curse in the world. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You want me to give you a paraphrase of that? Now, since sinful rebellion, life is going to be hard, and then you die. That's what that says. Everything has changed from original intent of of nearness. Now there's separation. Of blessing, now there's a curse. And of co-laboring, now there's a breaking of that. And now man is going to labor in difficulty where there was meant to be a fruit, a fruitful, easy garden. There's thorns and thistles now. Imagery, metaphoric language where things are going to go wrong. The the prickliness, the, the, the pokes of sin and rebellion. The results of that, the way it hurts us as humanity, thorns and thistles, and you'll work by the sweat of your face. It's going to be difficult. Things are going going to go wrong. It's going to be hard now, and then you'll die. Story's gotten ugly. Thankfully, there's a third act, gracious redemption. Thankfully, we don't have to go far for it. In fact, we could see it in just the next two verses there, but let's flip to Exodus. Go to Exodus, it's after Genesis, Exodus 19. The third part of the story, now redemption, we'll see in Exodus 19, we'll also see restoration here next, but let's look at the redemption part. What's happened now, we've skipped way ahead in the story. Israel, right, humanity sinned. God has brought Israel into the story to be a vehicle, an example of his redemptive work. Israel was enslaved to Egypt, and now God has brought them out of slavery. He set them free, and their, their enslavement in Egypt was a picture of our enslavement to sin before we come to Jesus Christ. So they were enslaved there. They were calling out, God help us, and God has delivered them. And that's where we pick up the story. Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, they'd been redeemed, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, verse 4, here's a salient point, You yourselves have seen, What I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Stop right there. There is the picture of gracious redemption. Notice on whom the onus or the emphasis on the passage is. It's on God, right? God is saying, I want Israel to know that I have done this. They haven't delivered themselves from slavery. They have not redeemed themselves with anything they came up with. They were helpless. I, God, endeavor to help those who cannot help themselves. I delivered them with my outstretched arm. I did it. I conquered Pharaoh. I brought them out on wings of eagles. And I brought them, here's the key point of redemption, to myself. 
Relationship being set right. God brought them to himself. So now the story's looking better. Everything was so grim with a curse. And now God steps in again. And God and God alone, by grace unexpectedly, undeservedly, redeems us from slavery to sin. Now look at the final act, which is restoration, just in the next couple verses. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, key phrase, my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's what I want you to get. That's what I want you to get. That is restoration. Notice what's happening. God has brought them near once again, right? There's a fixing of original intent. What went wrong because of the fall? A blessing has come back to them. You'll be my own special people. And once again, God is restoring humanity's place of co-ruling with him. He'll do it through Israel first as the example. He says to them in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Back to original intent of us working with God. A kingdom of priests, representatives of, partners with God. A holy nation, a nation set apart for God's purposes. Redemption is the act of God saving. Restoration is the act of God bringing us near his own possession and sharing his work, our priesthood, and being a holy nation. This is what's happening in Scripture. This is the whole flow and unfolding of the story. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you are salt and you are light. There's Genesis in mind and original intent. There's the breaking of that in the fall. There's redemption and then restoration is the work that Jesus is working, bringing restoration in our lives through nearness with God and restoration through our lives, through a priesthood, a, priesthood, a mediating, a working with God in the world. Redemption and restoration. This is always what God is doing. Let's turn to our favorite prophet, Prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, as we see these two pictured together one more time in the story of Scripture. Go to Isaiah. It's a while after Psalms, back toward the New Testament. If you open to the middle of your Bible and go right a little bit, it's there. Or you have a table of contents. Or you have little tabs like I do. Isaiah 61. Redemption and restoration pictured here together. Now this is a description of the ministry of Jesus. It's a description 700 years before he came, so it's a prophecy. This is a work that Jesus would do. It's going to sound very familiar to you. This is what Jesus read in Luke chapter 4 when he was in the synagogue in Capernaum. He opened up a scroll of Isaiah and he read this saying, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your sight. In other words, this is about me and my ministry of redemption and restoration, Christ was saying. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort 
All who mourn, right? There's the, the backdrop for blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Pause right there. There is another beautiful picture of redemption and sort of an earlier telling of the Beatitudes that God's blessing, God's deliverance would come to those who were unexpected and undeserved, those in prison and the brokenhearted and those who mourned and those who felt lost. God would come to them and give them a garland instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. God would do this. The onus was upon him. God acts in gracious redemption. I want you to see now how the biblical story just flows right here in this text. Look what it says about restoration now. Our role in restoration, God's intentional purpose, original intent in verse four. Then, after redemption, then, verse four, they, they, the redeemed, will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastation. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And strangers will stand and pastor your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers in your vineyards. Here's the important part, verse six. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. That is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you are salt, you are light. It is a completion, a continuation of the biblical story of God's original intent that we would be near to him and partnered with him in his work. And so he was speaking to us when he said, you are salt and light. And this is speaking to us when he says, you shall be called priests of the Lord and spoken of as ministers of God. Each of us having a role in God's purposes in the world. Having been redeemed, having God work a work of restoration in us, we now become restorers in the world according to what God wants to do. Right? You saw verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. Figurative language for what was lost to sin, what was broken in the rebellion, What was torn down through our run from God will be rebuilt through God working through his people. They will raise up the former devastations, the desolations of many generations. And so this story reverberates all the way through the Bible, all the way through the New Testament. That's what Jesus was talking about with salt and light. Peter spoke about it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said it this way. This will be really familiar language now. Speaking to Jesus' followers, he said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Does that sound familiar now? It's the same story. So that, okay, so that, here comes the restoration part, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, sinful rebellion, but now you are the people of God. 
gracious redemption. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what's the response? Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Biblical phraseology for non-believers, non-Jesus followers. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they are going to talk trash about us. They may, because of your good deeds, we ought to have them. As they observe them, they should be evidential. Glorify God in the day of visitation. See that? The work that we have been redeemed. We were once not a people. Now we're the people of God. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. God's very own possession. So that, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5.16, our lights may shine before humankind in such a way that they may see it and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Through the good works that we do. There's the the idea that good works are a witness here. And the, the invitation of the whole of the Bible and of these texts right here is for us to repartner with God as the redeemed. And this is ultimately where the story goes. Let's cheat a little bit and look at the end of the book, the book of Revelation, chapter one. We'll put it on the screen. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, there's gracious redemption. What do you think is going to follow? Verse 6, And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see that? Redemption has done something to who we are in accordance with God's original intent. We are brought back into partnership as priests and kings, so to speak. Queens, little ones. God's the big king. Matthew tells us Jesus is the king of kings. And the book of Hebrews tells us he's the ultimate and faithful high priest. But we have been brought into partnership with him in representing priesthood and in working righteous rule, co-regents. When we get to Revelation chapter 5, we are in heaven singing a song to Jesus. And look what part of the song is, this very truth. When Jesus had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Aren't you glad? Aren't you tired of all the same songs? And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, talking about Jesus, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's redemption. What do you think comes next? Restoration. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Restoration to original intent, partnership with God as priests and co-regents. We can even skip further ahead and go to the end to the end, Revelation chapter 20. And here's what it says about us in Revelation chapter 20. 
I saw thrones, John writes, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge Christ's people. They will be priests of our God and of Christ, and they will reign with him. Amen. So what Jesus is doing in our text, Matthew chapter 5, is he's calling the disciples back to this original intent. He's not leaving it in the hands of the religious elite in Jerusalem. He's not saying that this, this nearness, this proximity thing, this, this, this brought near in relationship thing, and this restorative work in individuals and in the world is found in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the sacrificial system. Christ has said that it is found in him and he is now calling his followers back into this intended role. It's what he first called Adam to. We read it in Genesis. He then called Israel to it. We read it in Exodus. And now he has called the church to it. Jesus followers. This is what we're called to. But let's take careful note. Adam failed to fulfill. As did Eve, but we'll leave it out. Adam failed to fulfill. Israel failed to fulfill. Jesus is the one who comes on the scene as the ultimate faithful high priest and the king of kings, the ultimate expression of salt and light, God's presence and God's work in the world. And so therefore, because Christ has done what Adam and Israel failed to do, we now only get to engage in that through him and in him. Our saltiness, our preship, Our light, our kingship with him, our co-regency is found in and through Christ alone. He took the curse for us. Remember those thorns and thistles that Genesis 3 talked about? They became the crown which was pressed into the skull of Christ. He took that curse upon himself, redeemed us from it, and is restoring all things. He is the ultimate salt and light. Think about just the metaphor of light and the way that it's employed in Scripture in the New Testament. Jesus is spoken of as light. Look at John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has not come into being, that has come into being, excuse me. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, here comes this light metaphor that we think we understand. There was the true light, speaking of Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, what's going on? Jesus says he's the light of the world. And the metaphor is is given to him. Jesus is a light that comes into the world. And then in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Which one is it, Bible? Is it Jesus or is it us? Well, it's kind of like this. Jesus is the big light. We're the little light. Or better said, it's kind of like the moon. You know, we look at the moon at night and we're like, oh, look at the moon. This is so beautiful. The, The light reflecting on the water. Let's kiss. This is romantic. But we know, because we're scientific beings, creatures, we know that the moon doesn't have any light in and of itself. The only time we see light coming from the moon is when it's positioned so that the light of the 
sun can shine on the moon and the light of the sun becomes the light of the moon and the light of the moon is seen in the world and on the world. And we look at the moon and say, look at the light, but it's really the light of the sun. Now, the only time that the moon ceases to show forth light, if you want to press the metaphor, is when the world gets positioned between the sun and the moon. Did you get it? Not many of you got it. The world, the things of the world. The... Really? That was better than you gave up for it. Okay. Let's go back to Isaiah. He'll say it better. I want you to see here how the light of God and us being lights are connected. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. See that? Our light and God's light. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Why? Because the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth. There's curse language. Deep darkness of peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you. There's sunrise Jesus language. And his glory will appear upon you. And then nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So you see that? In the metaphor, Jesus is the light. But our connectivity to him through redemption brings us into also being lights in the world, the work of restoration going on in the world. This is exactly how it's given to us in Matthew. If you're not in Matthew, go back to where we were in Matthew. We're looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. What have you looked at Matthew 4, 13 through 16? It would give us the same progression from the biblical story in Isaiah. Look what it says about Jesus in Matthew 4, 13 and 16. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness, there's curse language, saw a great light, redemption language. And to those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Who's the light spoken of here? People, please. Who's the light that comes into the darkness? This is Jesus. But then exactly one chapter later in the same set of verses, it's us. Jesus is the light who has come because he's working the work of redemption and restoration and he has pulled us, called us, invited us, taken us into this. Biblical story, the return to original intent. This is the idea of salt and light as it corresponds to our call of priests and kings. Mediating, representing God in the world, ruling through working righteousness in the world with Jesus only because he's the ultimate mediator and the ultimate king of kings and the faithful high priest. And the thing that we get about salt and light, if you get nothing else, and we'll talk more about how that metaphor unfolds in the next couple of weeks, but the thing we get is this. The reason Jesus employs that imagery is because salt and light always impacted what they came in contact with. Impact is the intent, intent of the passage other than bringing us back to restoration. Salt had an impact. In that day, it was generally used for preserving meat. You get that. But it, it did something. 
And light, it did something. Right? If you, you turn on light in the darkness, it does something. If you applied the, 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 the salt to the thing, it did something. So the idea is how we influence, do something according to God's intention and plan in the world. And there's a clear warning in the text of not participating in that. There's a clear warning of diminished influence, ineffectual impact. Right? Jesus says in verse 13, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, a bowl. They put it on a lampstand. There is this warning with this call back to original intent of not having the supposed impact on the world around us that we're to have as Christ followers. If salt has lost its taste, what are we going to do? We're going to throw it out in the road. It's good for nothing. It's trampled under the foot of men. You don't take a light and hide it under a bowl. What are you doing with your life? What are we doing with our lives? We've been brought into the grand, beautiful story of God's work in history. And our lives are meant to count for something. Ephesians 2 says that you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're a special possession. His masterpiece called into the passions of his own heart. And Jesus is restoring that here. He's bringing it back to his followers. He's saying, we lost it. You guys all lost it. But the light, the big light has come. Redemption has been accomplished. And so now, be salt. Be light. Let your life count for the glory of God. Now, I don't want that to feel unnecessarily weighty, though I want it to feel weighty. It is. I don't ever want to like dumb down what Jesus is saying to make you feel better about it. I don't want us to live lives that are thrown out and trampled underfoot. I don't want us to live lives that are hidden under a bowl when they should be shining for the world to see. So I'm encouraged by 2 Corinthians, which tells us this. Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. That's the way it works. And it's not because we're going to muster it up and try harder from God. It's because we have been redeemed by God himself through Christ. And because of that, we are new creations in Christ. And there is something real and new in us. And it's restoring us by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's working restoration through us. This is God's love, God's plan. And so God's plan for our lives is that he would lead us and triumph in Christ and manifest through our lives the sweetness of Jesus in every place. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, our communities. This is what God is endeavoring to do through you. So, again, we'll finish it up next week. We're, we're done. Next couple of weeks, we'll talk about it more. But this week, I want you to think seriously now. Okay? Don't shuffle your papers and get headed for the bathroom yet. I want you to think seriously now. In what way are you salt and are you light? Forget about trying to, like, nail down the nuances of the metaphor. The salient point is impact. 
In what way, according to God's purposes, by God's grace for the glory of God, are you making an impact on the world around you? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And how might you? What might that mean? Everyone is going to look a little different. Well, what might that look like in your family? What might that look like in your workplace, in school, wherever you are? What might it look like for you to be salt and light? Now that you've been saved, your life is meant to count. You can be a faithful priest representing God's love. First Peter 4.10 says, You have been given a special gift. Use it, therefore, in the serving of others as a good steward of God's grace in its various forms. You're called, you're empowered by the Spirit to be a good priest for God. To be a good co-laborer, a co-regent with God. He'll lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. How might that be happening in our lives? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be faithful to that by grace, amen? Thank you, Lord, for your calling. It's really kind to you, Lord, that you would just bring us into this love story of yours. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that it's dependent upon Christ and what he's done and not us and what we haven't done or failed to do or whatever or did do. Thank you for the story of mercy. And Lord, you, you know our lives. In fact, you know what you intend to for us. You, you know the plans that you have for us. You know the ways in which we're walking in them and not walking in them. Lord, we would ask for grace this morning that you would truly lead us in the way we ought to go. Thank you that our lives are not a mistake. They're not lost to sin and the curse. But through faith in Christ, we've been forgiven, redeemed. We're being restored. We've been made new and we're called to your purposes. Cause our hearts to thrill with that truth, Lord cause us to worship and praise and adore you because of it and teach us to walk and follow you in light of it. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen.